Chapter 9 in the Dark is Rising, The Coming of the Cold. The next day, the snow still fell, all day, and the next day, too. I do wish it would stop, said Mary unhappily, gazing at the blind white windows. It's horrible the way it just goes on and on. I hate it. Don't be stupid, said James. It's just a very long storm. No need to get hysterical. This is different. It's creepy. Rubbish. It's just a lot of snow. Nobody's ever seen so much snow before. Look how high it is. You couldn't get out of the back door if we hadn't been clearing it since it started to fall. We're going to be buried. That's what. It's pushing at us. It's even broken a window in the kitchen. Did you know that? Will said sharply, What? The little window at the back near the stove. Gwenny came down this morning and the kitchen was cold as ice with snow and bits of glass all over that corner. The snow had pushed the window in, the weight of it. James sighed loudly. Weight isn't pushing. The snow gets blown into a drift at that side of the house. That's all. I don't care what you say. It's horrible. As if the snow is trying to get in. She sounded close to tears. Let's go and see if the wa- the old tramp's woken up yet, Will said. It was time to stop Mary before she came to too near the truth. How many other people in the country were being made as frightened as this by the snow? He thought fiercely of the dark and longed to know what to do. The walker had slept through the previous day, hardly stirring except for occasional meaningless mutterings, and once or twice had a small hoarse shout. Will and Mary went up to his room now, carrying a tray with cereal and toast and milk and marmalade. Good morning, Will said loudly and brightly as they went in. Would you like some breakfast? The walker opened a slit of an eye and peered at them through his shaggy gray hair, longer and wilder than ever now that it was clean. Will held the tray toward him. Va! The walker croaked. It was a noise like spitting. Mary said, well, do you want something else instead then, said Will, or are you just not hungry? Honey, the walker said. Honey? Honey and bread. Honey and bread. Honey and... And all right, Will said. They took the tray away. He doesn't even say please, Mary said. He's a nasty old man. I'm not going near him anymore. Suit yourself, Will said. Left alone, he found the uh, tail end of a jar of honey in the back of the larder, rather crystalline over the edges, and spread it lavishly on three hunks of bread. He took this with a glass of milk up to the walker, who sat up greedily in bed and wolfed the lot. When eating, he was not a pretty sight. Good, he said. He tried to wipe some honey off his beard and licked the back of his hand, peeping at Will. Still snowing? Still coming down, is it? What are you? were you doing in, out in the snow? Nothing, the walker said sullenly. Don't remember. His eyes narrowed craftily, and he gestured at his forehead and said in a plaintive whine, Hit my head. Do you remember where we found you? No. Do you remember who I am? Very promptly, he shook his head. No. Will said softly again, this time in the old speech, Do you remember who I am? The walker's shaggy face was expressionless. Will began to think that perhaps he really had lost his memory. He leaned over the bed to pick up the tray with its empty plate and glass, and suddenly the walker let out a shrill scream and flinched away from him, cowering down at the far side of the bed. No, he screeched. No, get away. Take them away. Eyes wide and terrified, he was staring at Will in loathing. For a moment, Will was baffled. Then he realized that his sweater had lifted as he reached out his arm, and the walker had seen the four signs on his belt. Take them away, the old man howled. They burn. Get them out. So much for lost memory, Will thought. 
He heard concerned feet running up the stairs and went out of the room. Why should the walker be terrified by the great signs when he had carried one of them himself for so long? His parents were grave. The news on the radio grew worse and worse as the cold gripped the country and one restriction followed another. In all records of temperature, Britain had never been so cold. Rivers that had never frozen before stood as solid ice and every port on the entire coast was iced in. People could do little more than wait for the snow to stop, but still the snow fell. They led a restless and closed life, like cavemen in winter, said Mr. Stanton, and went to bed early to save fires and fuel. New Year's Day came and went and was scarcely noticed. The walker lay in bed fidgeting and muttering and refused to eat anything but bread and milk, which by now was tinned milk watered down. Mrs. Stanton said kindly that he was regaining his strength, poor old man. Will kept away. He was growing increasingly desperate as the cold tightened and the snow floated down and down. He felt that if he did not get out of the house soon, he would find the dark had boxed him up forever. His mother gave him an escape. In the end, she ran out of flour, sugar, and tin milk. I know nobody is supposed to leave the house except in dire emergency, she said anxiously, but really this counts as one. We do need things to eat. It took the boys two hours to shovel away through the snow in their own garden to the road where a kind of roofless tunnel, the width of one snowplow, had been kept clear. Mr. Stanton had announced that only he and Robin would go to the village, but throughout the two hours, Will, panting and digging, begged to be allowed to go too, and by the end, his father's resistance was so much lowered that he agreed. They wore scarves over their ears, heavy gloves, and three sweaters, each under their coats. They took a torch. It was mid-morning, but the snow was coming down as relentlessly as ever, and nobody knew when they might get home. From the steep-sided cutting in the one road of the village, tiny, uneven paths had been trodden and shoveled to the few shops and most of the central houses. They could see from the footprints that someone had brought horses out from Dawson's farm to help carve away to the cottages of people like Miss Bell and Mrs. Horniman, who could never have managed it for themselves. In the village store, Mrs. Pettigrew's tiny dog was curled up in a twitching gray heap in one corner, looking limper and unhappier than ever. Mrs. Pettigrew's fat son, Fred, who helped run the store, had sprained his wrist by falling in the snow and had one arm in a sling, and Mrs. Pettigrew was in a state. She twittered and dithered with nervousness. She dropped things. She hunted in quite the wrong places for sugar and flour and found neither of them, and in the end she sat down suddenly in a chair like a puppet dropped from its strings and burst into tears. Oh, she sobbed. I'm so sorry, Mr. Stanton. It's this terrible snow. I'm so frightened. I don't know. I have these dreams that we're cut off and nobody knows where we are. We already are cut off, said her son lugubriously. Not a car has been through the village for a week and no supplies and everyone's running out. There's no butter and not even any tinned milk and the flour won't last long. There's only five bags after this one. And nobody with any fuel, Mrs. Pettigrew sniffed. And the little Randall baby's sick with a fever and poor Mrs. Randall without a piece of coal and goodness knows how many more. The shop at Bell twanged as the door opened and in the automatic village habit, everyone turned to see who had come in. A very tall man in a a voluminous black overcoat, almost a cloak, was taking off his broad-brimmed hat to show a mop of white hair. Deep-shadowed eyes looked down at them over a fierce hooked nose. Good afternoon, Merriman said. Hello, said Will, beaming, his world suddenly bright. 
Afternoon, said Mrs. Pettigrew, and blew her nose hard. She said, muffled by the handkerchief, Mr. Stanton, do you know Mr. Lyon? He's at the manor. How do you do, said Will's father. Butler to Miss Graythorne, Merriman said, inclining his head respectfully. Until Mr. Bates comes back from holiday, that is to say, when the snow stops. At present, of course, I can't get out, and Bates can't get in. It'll never stop, Mrs. Pettigrew wailed, and she burst into tears again. Oh, mum, said Fat Fred in disgust. I have some news for you, Mrs. Pettigrew, said Merriman in loud, soothing tones. We have heard an announcement over the local radio. Our telephone being dead, of course, like yours, there's to be a fuel and food drop in the manor grounds, as the place most easily visible from the air in the snow. And Miss Graythorne is asking if everyone in the village would like would not like to move into the manor for the emergency. It will be crowded, of course, but warm and comforting, perhaps, and Dr. Armstrong will be there. He is already on his way, I believe. That's ambitious, Mr. Stanton said reflectively. Almost futile, you might say. Merriman's eyes narrowed slightly, but with no such intention. Oh, no, I do, I do see that. Mrs. Pettigrew's tears ceased. What a lovely idea, Mr. Lyon. Oh, dear, it would be such a relief to be with other people, especially at night. I'm other people, said Fred. Yes, dear, but... Fred said stolidly, I'll go and get some blankets and pack some stuff from the shop. That would be wise, Merriman said. The radio says the storm will grow very much worse this evening, so the sooner everyone can gather, the better. Would you like some help with telling people? Robin began, pulling up his collar again. Excellent, that would be excellent. We'll all help, said Mr. Stanton. Will had turned to look out the window at the mention of the storm, but the snow floating down out of the solid gray sky seemed much as before. The windows were so misted that it was difficult to see out of them at all, but he caught a glimpse now of something moving outside. There was someone out there on the snow road ca carved through Huntercombe Lane. He saw, clearly, only for a second, as the figure passed the end of the Pettigrew's path, but a second was as all he needed to recognize the man sitting erect on the great black horse. The rider has passed, he said quickly and clearly in the old speech. Merriman's head jerked round, then he collected himself and ostentatiously swept his hat onto his head. I shall be very grateful to have assistance. <clears throat> what did you say, Will? Robin, distracted, was staring at his brother. Oh, nothing. Will went to the door, making a great fuss over buttoning his coat. Just thought I saw someone. But you said something in some funny language. Of course I didn't. I just said, who's that out there? Only it wasn't anyone anyway. Robin was still staring at him. You sounded just like that old tramp when he was babbling when we first put him to bed. But he was not giving given to wasting time on surmise. He shook his practical head and dropped the subject. Oh, well. Merriman managed to walk closely behind Will as they were leaving the Pettigrews to scatter and warn the rest of the villagers. He said softly in the old speech, Get the walker to the manor if you can, quickly, or he will stop you from getting out yourself but you may have a little trouble with your father's pride. By the time the Stantons reached home, after their struggling tour of the village, Will had almost forgotten what Merriman had said about his father. He was too busy working out how they could get the walker to the manor without actually having to carry him. He remembered only when he heard Mr. Stanton talking in the kitchen as they pulled off their coats and delivered their supplies. Good of the old girl having everyone there, 
Of course, they've got the space and the fires, and those old walls are so thick they could keep the cold out better than anyone's. Much the best thing for the people from the cottages. Poor Miss Bell wouldn't have lasted long. Still, of course, we're all right here, self-contained. No point in adding to the manorial load. Oh, Dad, Will said impulsively, don't you think we ought to go too? I don't think so, said his father, with the lazy assurance that Will should have known was harder to break than any fervor. But Mr. Lyon said it would be much more dangerous later on because of the storm getting worse. I think I can make my own judgment on the, the weather, Will, without help from Miss Lyon, Miss Graythorne's butler, said Mr. Stanton amiably. Oh, wow, said Max with cheerful rudeness. You rotten old snob, hark at you. Oh, come on, that's not what I meant. His father threw a wet muffler at him. Inverted snobbery, more like it, more like. I simply don't see any good reason for our trooping off to partake of the bounty of the lady of the manor. We're perfectly all right here. Quite right, Mrs. Stanton said briskly. Now, out of the kitchen, all of you, I want to make some bread. The only hope, Will decided, was the walker himself. He slipped away and went upstairs to the tiny spare room where the walker lay in bed. I want to talk to you. The old man turned his head on the pillow. All right, he said. He seemed muted and unhappy. Suddenly, Will felt sorry for him. Are you better, he said. I mean, are you actually ill now? Ill now, or do you just feel weak? I am not ill, the walker said listlessly. No more than usual. Can you walk? You want to me throw me out in the snow? Is that it? Of course not, Will said. One would never let you go off in this weather, and nor would I, not that I've got much say in it. I'm the very youngest in this family, you know that. You are an old one, the walker said, looking at him with dislike. Well, that's different. It's not different at all. Just means there's no point talking about yourself to me as if you were just a little kid in a family. I know better, Will said. You were... Guard, guardian of one of the great signs. I don't see why you should seem to hate us. I did what I was made to do, the old man said. You took me. You picked me out. His brows creased as though he were trying to remember something from a long time ago. Then he grew vague again. I was made to. Well, look, I don't want to make you do anything, but there's one thing we all have to do. The snow's getting so bad that everyone in the village is going to live at the manor, like a kind of hostel, because it'll be safer and warmer. He felt, as he talked, that the walker might know what he was going to say already, but it was impossible to get inside the old man's mind. Whenever he tried, he found himself floundering, as if he had broken into the stuffing of a cushion. The doctor will be there too, he said. So if you were to let everyone feel you needed to be somewhere with a doctor, we could all go to the manor. You mean you aren't going otherwise? The walker squinted suspiciously at him. My father won't let us. We have to. It's But we have to. It's safer. I won't go either, the walker said. He turned his head away. Go away. Leave me be. Will said softly, warningly in the old speech. The dark will come for you. There was a pause. Then, very slowly, the walker turned his shaggy gray head back again, and Will flinched in horror as he saw the face. For just a moment, its history was naked upon it. There were bottomless depths of pain and terror in those eyes. The lines of black experience were, car were carved clear and terrible. This man had known somewhere such a fearful dread and anguish that nothing could really ever touch him again. 
His eyes were wide for the first time, stretched open with his knowledge of horror looking out. The walker said emptily, The dark has already come for me. Will took a deep breath. But now the circle of the light comes, he said. He pulled off the belt with the signs and held it before the walker. The old man flitched away, screwing up his face, whimpering like a frightened animal. Will felt sickened, but there was no help for it. He brought the signs closer and closer to the twisted old face until, like a piece of breaking wire, the walker's self-control snapped. He shrieked and began to babble and thrash about, screaming for help. Will ran outside and called for his father, and half the family came running. I think he's having some sort of fit. Awful. Shouldn't we get him to Dr. Armstrong at the manor, Dad? Mr. Stanton said doubtfully. We could get the doctor to come here, perhaps. But he might very well be better off there, said Mrs. Stanton, staring at the walker in concern. The old man, I mean, with the doctor able to watch him, and more comfortable comfort and food. Really, this is alarming, Roger. I don't know what to do for him here. Will's father gave in. They left the walker still tossing and raving, with Max nearby in case of accidents, and went to turn the big family toboggan into a, a mobile stretcher. Only one thing nagged in Will's mind. It had to be his imagining, but in the moment when the walker had cracked at the sight of the great signs and become a mad old man once more, he had thought he saw a flash of triumph in the flickering eyes. The sky hung gray and heavy, waiting to snow, as they left for the manor with a walker. Mr. Stanton took the twins with him and Will. His wife watched them go with unfamiliar nervousness. I hope it really is over. Do you really think Will should go? Comes in handy to have someone light sometimes in the snow, said his father over Will's splutter. He'll be all right. You aren't going to stay there, are you? <laughs> of course not. The only point of the exercise is to deliver the old man to the doctor. Come on, Alice, this isn't like you. There's no danger, you know. I suppose not, Mrs. Stanton said. They set off, heaving the toboggan with the walkers strapped to it, so trust in blankets that he was invisible, a thick human sausage. Will left last. Gwen handed him the torches and a flask. I must say I'm not sorry to see your discovery go, she said. He frightens me, more like an animal than an old man. It seemed a long while before they reached the manor gates. The drive had been cleared and trodden down by many feet, and two bright pressure lamps hung by the great door, lighting the front of the house. Snow was falling again, and the wind be beginning to blow chill round their faces. Before Robin's outstretched hand reached the doorbell, Merriman was opening the door. He looked first for Will, though no one else noticed the urgent flicker of his eyes. Welcome, he said. Evening, Roger Stanton said. Shan't stay. We're fine at the house, but there's an old chap here who's ill and he needs a doctor all things considered it seems better to bring him here rather than have dr armstrong going to and fro so we hopped out before the storm broke it is rising already merriman said gazing out then he stooped and helped the twins carry the walker's motionless swaddled form into the house at the threshold the bundle of blankets jerked convulsively and the walker could be heard muffled through his coverings cover shouting no 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 the doctor, please, said Merriman to a woman standing nearby, and she scurried away. The great empty hall where they had sung their carols was filled with people now, warm and bustling, unrecognizable. Dr. Armstrong appeared, nodding briskly all around. He was a small, bustling man with a monkish fringe of gray hair circling his bald head. The Stantons, like all Huntercombe, knew him well. 
He had cured every ailment in the family for more years than Wilk had been alive. He peered at the walker, now twisting and moaning in protest. What's this, hey? Shock, perhaps, said Merriman. He really behaves very oddly, Mr. Stanton said. He was found unconscious in the snow some days ago, and we thought he was recovering, but now... The big front door slammed itself shut in the rising wind, and the walker screamed. Hmm, said the doctor, and beckoned two large young helpers to carry him off to some inner room. Leave him to me, he said cheerfully. So far, we've got one broken leg and two sprained ankles. He'll, be, he'll pr uh, provide variety. He trotted off after his patient. Will's father turned to peer out of the darkening window. My wife will start worrying, he said. We must go. Merriman said gently, if you go now, I think you will leave, but not arrive, probably in a little while. The dark is rising, you see, Will said. His father looked at him with a half smile. You're very poetic all of a sudden. All right, we'll wait just a bit. I could do with a breather to tell you the truth. Better say hello to Miss Scraythorn in the meantime. Where is she, Lion? Merriman, the deferential butler, led the way into the crowd. It was the oddest gathering Will had ever seen. Suddenly, half the village was living in close intimacy, a tiny colony of beds and suitcases and blankets. People hailed them from small nests scattered all around the huge room, a bed or a mattress tucked into a corner or fenced in by a chair or two. Miss Bell waved gaily from a sofa. It was like an untidy hotel with everyone camping in the foyer. Miss Graythorn was sitting stiff and upright in her wheelchair beside the fire, reading the phoenix and the carpet to a speechless group of village children. Like everyone else in the room, she looked uncommonly bright and cheerful. Funny, Will said, as they picked through their way through. Things are absolutely awful, and yet people look much happier than usual. Look at them all, bubbling. They are English, Merriman said. Quite right, said Will's father. Splendid in adversity, tedious when safe. Never content, in fact. We're an odd lot. We're not English. You're not English, are you? He said suddenly to Merriman and Will was astonished to hear a slightly hostile note in his voice. A mongrel, Merriman said blandly. It's a long story. His deep-set eyes glittered down at Mr. Stanton, and then Miss Graythorn caught sight of them all. Ah, there you are. Evening, Mr. Stanton. Boys, how are you? What do you think of this, eh? Isn't it a lark? As she put down the book, the circle of children parted to admit the newcomers, and the twins and their father were, were absorbed in talk. Merriman said softly to Will in the old speech, Look into the fire for the length of time that it takes you to trace the shape of each of the great signs with your right hand. Look into the fire. Make it your friend. Do not move your eyes for all that time. Wondering, Will moved forward as if to warm himself and did as he was told, staring at the leaping flames of the enormous log fire in the hearth. He ran his fingers gently over the sign of iron, the sign of bronze, the sign of wood, the sign of stone. He spoke to the fire, not as he had done long ago, when challenged to put it out, but as an old one, out of Grammarai. He spoke to it of the red fire in the king's hall, of the blue fire dancing over the marshes, of the yellow fire lighted on the beacon hills for Beltane and Halloween, of wildfire and need fire, and the cold fire of the sea, of the sun and of the stars. The flames leapt. His fingers reached the end of their journey round the last sign. He looked up, he looked, and he saw, he saw 
not the genial muddle of the collected villagers in a tall, paneled modern room lit by electric standard lamps, but the great candle-shadowed stone hall with its tapestry hangings and high-vaulted roof that he had seen once before a, a world ago. He looked up from the log fire that was the same fire, but blazing now in a different hearth, and he saw as before, out of the past, the two heavy carved chairs, one on either side of the fireplace. In the chair on the right sat Merriman, cloaked, and in the chair on the left sat a figure whom he had last seen, not a day before, lying on a bier as if dead. He bent quickly and knelt at the old lady's feet. Madame, he said. She touched his hair gently. Will. I am sorry for breaking the circle that first time, he said. Are you well now? Everything is well, she said in her soft, clear voice, and will be if we can win the last battle for the signs. What must I do? Break the power of the cold. Stop the snow and cold and frost. Release this country from the hold of the dark. All with the next of the circle, the sign of fire. Will looked at her helplessly. But I haven't got it. I don't know how. One sign of fire you have with you already. The other waits. In its winning, you will break the cold. But before that, our own circle of flame must be completed. That is an echo of the sign, and to do that, you must take power away from the dark. She pointed to the great wrought iron ring of candle sockets on the table, the circle quartered by a cross. As she raised her arm, the light glinted on the rose ring on her finger. The outer ring of candles was complete, twelve white columns burning exactly as they had when Will was last in the hall. But the cross arms still stood empty socketed. Nine holes gaped. Will stared at them unhappily. This part of his quest left him in despair. Nine great enchanted candles to come out of nowhere? Power to be seized from the dark? A sign that he had already without knowing it? Another that he must find without knowing where or how? Have courage, the old lady said. Her voice was faint and tired. When Will looked at her, he saw that she herself seemed faint in outline, as if she were no more than a shadow. He reached out his hand in concern, but she drew back her arm. Not yet. There is another kind of work to be done, yet, too. You see how the candles burn well? Her voice dwindled, then rallied. They will show you. Will looked at the brilliant candle flames. The tall ring of light held his eyes. As he looked, he felt a strange jolting sensation, as if the whole world had shuddered. He looked up, and he saw... And he saw, when he raised his eyes, that he was back in the manner of Miss Graythorne's time, Will Stanton's time, with the paneled walls and the murmur of many voices and one voice speaking in his ear. It was Dr. Armstrong. Asking for you, he was saying. Mr. Stanton was standing beside him. The doctor paused and looked oddly at Will. Are you all right, young man? Oh, yes, yes, I'm fine. Sorry. What was it you said? I was saying that your old tramp friend is asking for you. The seventh son, he lyrically puts it, though how he knew that I can't say. I am, though, aren't I? Will said. I didn't know till the other day about the little brother who died, Tom. Dr. Armstrong's eyes went a long way away for a moment. Tom, he said. The first baby, I, I remember. That's a while ago. His gaze came back. Yes, you are. So, so's your father, for that matter. Will's head jerked round, and he saw his father grin. Your seventh son, Dad? Certainly, Roger Stanton said, his round pink face rem reminiscent. Half the family was killed in the last war, but 
There were twelve of us once. You knew that, didn't you? Proper tribe, it was. Your mother loved it, being an only child herself. I dare say that's why she had all you lot. Appalling in this overpopulated age. Yes, you're the seventh son of a seventh son. We used to joke about it when you were a baby. But not later on, in case you got ideas about having second sight, or whatever it is they they say. Ha <laughs> ha, Will said with some effort. Did you find out what's wrong with the old tramp, Dr. Armstrong? To tell you the truth, he has me rather confused, the doctor said. He should have a, a sedative in his disturbed state, but he's got the lowest pulse rate and blood pressure I've ever come across in my life, so I don't know. There's nothing physically wrong with him, so far as I can tell. Probably he's just feeble-minded like so many of these old wanderers. Not that you see many of them nowadays. They've nearly disappeared. Anyway, he keeps shouting to see you, Will, so if you can, uh, can put up with it, I'll take you in for a moment. He's harmless enough. The walker was making a lot of noise. He stopped when he saw Will and his eyes narrowed. His mood had clearly changed. He was confident again, the line triangular face bright. He looked over Will's shoulder at Mr. Stanton and the doctor. Go away, he said. Hmm, said Dr. Armstrong, but he drew Will's father with him nearer the door, within sight but out of earshot. The small cloakroom that was serving as a sick bay, one other casualty, the broken leg, lay in bed, but he appeared to be asleep. You can't keep me here, but Walker uh, hissed. The rider will come for me. You were scared stiff of the rider once, Will said. I saw you. Have you forgotten that too? I forget nothing, the walker said scornfully. That fear is gone. It went, to, it went when the sign left me. Let me go. Let me get out to my people. A curious stiff formality seemed to be coming into his speech. Your people didn't leave, didn't mind leaving you to die in the snow, Will said. Anyway, I'm not keeping you here. I just had you brought to the doctor. You can hardly expect him to let you go out in the middle of a storm. Then the rider will come, the old man said. His eyes glittered, and his, he, he raised his voice so that he was shrieking to everyone in the room. The rider will come! The rider will come! Will left him as his father and the doctor came rapidly toward the bed. What on earth was that? Was all that about? said Do Mr. Stanton. The walker, with the doctor bending over him, had fallen back and lapsed into angry mumbling again. Goodness knows, said Will. He was just talking nonsense. I think Dr. Armstrong's right. He's a bit cracked. He looked all around the room, but no sign of Merriman. What's happened to Mr. Lyon? Mm, he's somewhere, his father said vaguely. Find the twins, would you, Will? I'll go and see if the storm's dropped enough to let us out yet. Will stood in the bustling hall as people came and went with blankets and pillows, cups of tea, sandwiches from the kitchen, empty plates going back again. He felt odd, detached, as though he were suspended in the middle of this preoccupied world, and yet not part of it. He looked at the great hearth. Even the roar of the flames could not drown out the howling wind outside and the lash of icy snow against the window panes. The flames leapt, holding Will's eyes. From somewhere outside time, Merriman said into his mind, Take care. It is true. The rider will come for him. That is why I had you bring him here, to a place strengthened by time. The rider would have come to your own house otherwise, and all that comes with the rider, too. Will? Miss Graythorne's imperious contralto came ringing. Come over here. And Will looked back into the into the pre present and went to, to her. 
He saw Robin beside her chair, and Paul approaching with a long, flat box of a familiar shape in his hands. "'We thought we'd have a kind of concert until the wind drops,' said Mrs. Graythorn briskly. "'Everyone doing a little bit. Everyone who fancies the idea, that is. A cali, or whatever the Scots call them.' Will looked at the happy gleam in his brother's eye. "'And Paul's going to play that old flute of yours that he likes so much.' "'In due course,' Paul said. "'And you're going to sing.' All right, Will looked at Robin. I, said Robin, am going to lead the applause. There'll be a lot of that. We appear to be a madly talented village. Miss Bell will recite a poem, three boys from the Dorney and have a folk group. Two of them even brought their guitars. Old Mr. Dewurst will do a monologue. Just try and stop him. Somebody, <clears throat> Somebody's little daughter wants to dance. There's no end to it. I thought Will said Miss Graythorn, that perhaps you would begin. If you were just to start singing, you know, anything you like, then gradually people would stop to listen until there's a complete hush, much better than me ringing a bell or something and saying, we will all now have a concert. Don't you agree? I suppose so, yes, said Will. Though nothing could have been further from his mind at that moment than the idea of making peaceful music. He thought briefly, and into his mind came a, mel a melancholy little song that the school music master had transposed for his voice just the term before. As an experiment, feeling rather a show-off, Will opened his mouth where he stood and began to sing. Wide in the moon the long road lies, the moon stands blank above. Wide in the moon the long road lies, that leads me to from my love. Still hangs the edge without a gust, still still the shadows stay. My feet upon the moonlit dust pursue the ceaseless way. The talking around him fell away into silence. He saw faces turned in his direction and nearly dropped a note as he recognized some that he had hoped to see but had not found before. There they were, keeping quietly in the background. Farmer Dawson, Old George, John Smith, and his wife, the old ones ready again to make their circle if need be. Near by the rest of the Dawson family, Will's father standing with them. The world is round, so travelers tell, and straight they'll reach the track. Trudge on, trudge on, twill all be well. The way will guide one back. From the corner of one eye, he saw, with a shock, the figure of the walker, with a blanket wrapped around him like a cloak. The old man was standing in the doorway of the little sick room, listening. For an instant, Will saw his face and was astonished. All guile and terror were gone from that lined triangle. There was only sadness on it and hopeless longing. There was even a glint of tears in the eyes. It was the face of a man shown something immensely precious that he had lost. For a second, Will felt that his music, with his music, he could draw the walker into the light. He gazed at him as he sang, making the plaintive notes an appeal, and the walker stood limp and unhappy, looking back. But ere the circle homeward hies, far, far must it remove. White in the moon, the long road lies. That leads me from my love. The room had stilled dramatically as he sang, and the boy's clear soprano, that always seemed to belong to a stranger, soared high and remote through the air. Now there was a small silence, the only part of the performing, that really meant anything to him. And afterward, quite a lot of clapping. Will heard it from a long way away. Miss Graythorn called to them all. We thought to pass the time that anyone who feels inclined might do a little entertaining to drown out the storm. Who'd like to join in?
There was a cheerful buzz of voices, and Paul began to play the old manor flute, very soft and low. Its gentle sweetness filled the room, and Will stood more confidently as he listened and thought of the light. But in the next moment, the music could no longer bring him strength. He could not hear it at all. His hair pricked. His bones ached. He knew that something, somebody was coming near, wishing ill to the manor and all inside it, and most of all, him, himself. The wind rose. It whipped, screeching at the window. There was a tremendous thump of a knock at the door. Across the room, the walker jumped up, his face twisted again, tight with waiting. Paul played unhearing. The crashing knock came again. None of them could hear. Will realized suddenly, though the wind was near to deafening him, it was not for their ears, nor would they know what was happening now. The crash came a third time, and he knew what he was bound to, that he was bound to answer. He walked alone through unheeding, though through unheeding people to the door, took hold of the big iron circle that was the handle, muttered some words under his breath in the old speech, and flung open the door. Snow spat in at, in at him. Sleet slashed his face. Winds whistled through the hall. Out in the darkness, the great black horse reared up high over Will's head, hooves flailing, eyes rolling white, the foam flying from the bar barred teeth, and above it gleamed the blue eyes of the rider and the flaring red of his hair. In spite of himself, Will cried out and threw up one arm instinctively in self-defense, and the black stallion screamed and fell back with the rider into the dark, and the door swung shut, and there was all all at once nothing in Will's ears except the sweet lilt of the old flute as Paul played on. People sat and sprawled tranquility, tranquilly about just as they had before. Slowly, Will brought down his arm, still crooked defensively over his head, and as he did so, he noticed something that he had totally forgotten. On the underside of the forearm, which had been facing the black rider when he threw up his arm, was the burned-in scar of the sign of iron. In that other great hall, the first time, he had burned himself on the sign when the dark was making its first attempt at him. The lady had healed the burn. Will had forgotten it was there. One sign of fire you have with you already. So that was what she had meant. One sign of fire had kept the dark at bay, driven it out of the strong out of its strongest attack, perhaps. Will leaned limp, limply against the wall and tried to breathe more slowly. But as he looked across the tranquil crowd listening to their music, he saw again a figure that sent all his confidence crashing into nothing, and the quick instinct of Grammarai told him that he had been tricked. He had thought he was outfacing a challenge, and so he was. But in doing it, he had opened the door between the dark and the walker, and thus in some way so strengthened the walker that the old man had gained a power he had been waiting for. For the walker was now standing tall, his eyes bright, his head flung hot up, and his back straight. He held one arm high and called out in a strong, clear voice, Come wolf, come hound, come cat, come rat, come held, come holda, I call you in. Come ura, come taunt, pan, come coal, come quert, come mora, come master, I bring you in. The summons went on, a long list of names, all familiar to Will from the book of Grammarai. Miss Graythorne's hall, no one could see or hear. All went on as before, and through the ending of Paul's music and the loud, determined beginning of old Mr. Dewhurst's monologue, no eyes that glanced in Will's direction seemed to see him. He wondered whether his father, still standing talking to the Dawsons, would shortly notice that his youngest son was not to be seen. 
But very soon, as the ringing summons from the walker went on and on, he ceased to wonder, for under his senses, the hall began subtly to change. The old hall of the lady came back into his consciousness and absorbed more and more of the appearance of the present. Friends and family faded. Only the walker remained clear as before, standing now at the far end of the great hall away from the fire. And while Will stared, still stared at the group in which his father stood, even while it faded, he saw take place the doubling by which the old ones were able to move themselves in and out of time. He saw one form of Frank Dawson step easily out of the first, leaving his other self to fade as part of the present. The second form grew clearer and clearer as it came toward him, and after it, in the same way, came old George, young John, and the blue-eyed woman, and Will knew this had been the manner of his own arrival, too. Soon the four were grouped around him in the center of the ladies' hall, each facing outward, four corners of the, a square. And as the walker called his long summons of the dark, the hall itself began to change again to change. Strange lights and flames flickered along the walls, obscuring the windows and hangings. Here and there, at the sound of a particular name, blue fire would dart up into the air, hiss and die down again. On each of the three walls facing the hearth, three great sinister flames shot up, which did not afterwards die down, but remained dancing and curving in ominous brilliance, filling the hall with cold light. Before the hearth in the big chair, carved chair he had occupied from the beginning, Merriman sat motionless. There was a terrible restrained strength in his sitting. Will looked at the broad shoulders with foreboding, as he would have looked at a gigantic spring that might at any moment snap loose. The walker chanted louder, Come Uath, come Trueth, come Uru, and come Loth, come Hirgo, come Kelmis, I bring you in. Merriman stood up, a great white, a great black white plumed pillar. His cloak was wrapped around him. Only his sto carved stone face was clear, with the, the light blazing in his, in his mass of white hair. The walker looked at him and faltered. Thick round the hall, the fires and the flames of the dark hissed and danced, all white and blue and black, with no gold or red or warm yellow in any. The nine tallest flames stood up like menacing trees. But the walker seemed to have lost his voice again. He looked once more at Merriman and shrank back a little. And through the mixture of longing and fear in the bright eyes, suddenly Will knew him. Hawken, Merriman said softly, there is still time to come home. <laughs>